This time I will invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. If you'd like to follow along in one of the red Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, the text begins on page 866. Page 866 in those red Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse verse 40. This month, as many of you know, marks the 500th anniversary of the event that inadvertently but quite effectively kicked off what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Um, The event occurred when a 34-year-old Augustinian monk from Germany named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in, in Wittenberg, Germany. Author Stephen Nichols put it this way in his subtitle to his wonderful book on the subject. He said, a monk and a mallet changed the world. That's true. The Reformation recovered for us an extraordinary amount of Christian doctrine and teaching as well as Christian practice, and it really did change the world, not just the church. And the doctrine that emerged high above all others when the dust of the Reformation settled was, of course, the doctrine of justification by faith. John Calvin called the doctrine of justification by faith the main hinge on which religion turns. Martin Luther himself said of justification by faith that it is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Then more recently, uh, standing in the same historic stream, eminent churchman and theologian R.C. Sproul confessed this. Sproul said, The article of justification by faith is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, the judge over all kinds of doctrines. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscience before God. Without this article, the world is utter death and darkness. And Sproul concludes, If the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time time. Now that is high praise for a single teaching of the Bible. But what precisely is it? What does it mean? Well, it's been said a a picture is worthy of a thousand words, and I want to paint a a picture of justification by faith that was originally, I first heard it painted by, by Tim Keller when he was preaching on the Old Testament account of the exodus of the Jews out of Egypt. Keller said to imagine the Jews as they were standing on the shore of the Red Sea and there in the power of God, Moses parted this massive body of water. And he said to envision these roaring walls of water on either side of the Hebrew people as the entire nation passed through on the muddy gorge underneath. And finally, Keller said, picture the people And see if you can just visualize in your mind's eye some of the looks that were on the faces of the Jews as they passed through. Can you imagine the broad spectrum of responses? I mean, they're crossing the Red Sea. This is something that has never happened in world history before or since. So on the one hand, you've got some Jews walking through with their heads pretty high, their chests puffed out, and they're saying something like, I knew you could do it, Lord. This is awesome. God is on our side. Eat your heart out, Pharaoh. Right? And they're full of confidence moving through the 
walls of water. That's one sort of person. Uh, But there was very likely another sort of person present among the Jews that day as they were walking through. Their heads are not held high. As a matter of fact, these people can't even look up. They're completely freaking out. And they're saying something like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Lord, please just help me keep walking. Please. I just want to stop. Ah! Right? So here's the question. Which sort of people made it across to the other side? Both. Both made it across. The courageous and the timid. Why? Because the people weren't saved by the quality of their faith. They were saved by the object of their faith. And that's a picture of justification. It's an Old Testament picture of how it works. Justification by grace through faith. Now, today's sermon text features two miracle stories. In fact, uh, what we have here is two miracles interwoven. It's, It's a miracle within a miracle. And the single hinge upon which both miracle stories turn is faith. So would you follow along with me as I read these dueling supernatural accounts? Luke chapter 8, verse 40 to 56. Luke 8, beginning in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him and declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been made immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But on hearing this, Jesus answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So, What do we say about these two interwoven miracle stories, this miracle within a miracle? How do we understand them in their original context, and what do they have to say to us today that matters today? 
here's the big idea for both stories this morning. Taking of riffing off of Tim Keller a little bit here. We are not saved because of the quality of our faith. We are saved because of the quality of our Savior. Amen? We are not saved because of the quality of our faith, which is going to be varying degrees here this morning, any morning. We are saved because of the quality of our Savior. Each account here features a stone-cold miracle. Furthermore, each account here features the centrality of faith. And the point of this passage of Scripture isn't that Christ guarantees the reverse of all disease and death in this life. That is not the point of this passage, nor does the Bible ever teach such a thing. God has far too many good and wise designs for us, both in disease and in death, not to use these in powerful ways in our lives. The point of this passage of Scripture, in the words of of Daryl Bach, is that through faith we can have confidence about God's power, compassion, and capability to do absolutely anything. Amen? That's what we have confidence in. So two simple truths about faith are before us this morning. We're not saved because of the quality of our faith. We are saved because of the quality of our Savior. So here's point number one. Even little faith in a big Christ can do great things. Even little faith in a big Christ can do great things. So the story begins this week where last week's ended. And if you were with us last week, you may recall that we left our Savior as he boarded a boat in the region of the Gerasenes, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret it's also called. Remember there that Jesus had exercised a demon-possessed man in this Gentile territory. And the people from the region of the Gerasenes begged him to leave them. As Puritan pastor Matthew Henry notes, Christ was driven away by the Gerasenes because they were weary of him and wanted to be rid of him. Can you imagine? That's why he left. Jesus is not going to stay where he's not wanted. So he got on the boat and he went back toward the region of the Galilee on the west coast of the sea. And the text says in verse 40, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Well, that's interesting because it's probably the same exact crowd from chapter 8, verse 4, which says that a crowd gathered to hear and he told the parable of the sower and the soils. Remember that about a month ago? Same crowd. They're ready for him as he returns. And all of a sudden, making his way through the crowd, falling down before the Savior, you see verses 41 and 42, there's a desperate man. And his name is Jairus. The text refers to him as a ruler of the synagogue. Furthermore, it says, falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Jairus may have been a ruler of the synagogue, but he came and prostrated himself before the ruler of heaven, right? Jairus' vocation would have included arranging corporate worship gatherings for God's people, but Jesus' vocation included being an object of corporate worship and gathering God's people. It's hard to know with precision exactly what Jairus believes about Jesus at this point. Jesus has already done some stunning things in Jairus' community, but I think we're on solid ground to conclude that he knew Jesus was special. His only daughter, 12 years of age, is gravely ill, and he entreats Jesus to help her. 
Verse 42 indicates that Jesus complies with the man's request, and not without some difficulty, for the text says at this point, as Jesus went out, the people pressed around him. Now, we'll come back to this detail because Luke picks it up just a few verses later. Um, But now we need to turn our attention to the miracle within the miracle. Verse 43 says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So the ESV translates this condition as as a discharge of blood. Calvin translated it as a bloody flux. Vivid, isn't it? King James calls it an issue of blood. Now, from what I can discern, as scholars look at this text and commentators, they seem to think that this woman suffered from a uterine hemorrhage for 12 years. I was talking with Melissa about it this morning at the breakfast table, and she reminded me that this woman would have been severely anemic after 12 years. Very, very sluggish. Low in iron. And while doctors might treat such a condition today with a blood transfusion or invasive surgery of some kind, this was not, as you can imagine, the protocol 2,000 years ago. First century medicine for this woman's condition included a glass of wine mixed with rubber and aluminum, garden crocuses, or maybe a glass of wine mixed with onions. And as you can imagine, these things weren't exactly easy to come by in the ancient Near East, and so this was costly. The text indicates this was not cheap. She had spent everything she had for 12 years and to no avail. And at this point, as well as her her body, as well as her resources, are almost completely consumed. How long had she suffered from the condition? 12 years. How old was the girl that's lying sick? 12 years. It's a long time to suffer this way for both of these these women. And Jesus is, is on it. Verse 44 contains the miracle within the miracle. The text says she came up behind him, she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So a couple things here. First, she came up behind him. Why? She's the only person in all four Gospels that approaches Jesus from behind in a secret way to be healed. Why would she do that? I mean, she doesn't speak to him. She doesn't face him. She doesn't even attempt to touch him. She just wants a tassel on his garment? Well, first of all, because the law of Moses, according to Moses' law, this woman is unclean. Leviticus 15, verses 25 to 31, makes this abundantly clear. She is to have no contact with anyone except perhaps to be examined by a doctor or or a priest. But the moment she reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment, she's healed. She's whole. As I was preparing the sermon this week, I couldn't help but think of the old gospel tune sung by Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers entitled, Touch the Hem of His Garment. Oh, it's glorious. I won't embarrass any of us by singing it this morning. It's a little bit more soulish than I can probably pull off, but you just imagine Sam Cooke singing these words. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. That's what she was thinking. And it turns out that's what happened. Now, what makes this account so memorable is what happens next. Look with me at verses 45 to 48. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you, pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, 
for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Let's give our Lord the benefit of the doubt here that he actually knew who had touched him. I realize there are some things Jesus says he doesn't know, but I think in this case he, he knew. I'm inclined to think he did this deliberately, specifically because he wanted to drive this woman out into the open. And the exchange between Jesus and Peter is, is classic, isn't it? Who was it that touched me? Master, the crowds are, are surrounding you, pressing in on you. Someone touched me, I perceive that power has gone out from me. The, the Peter language here in verse 45 is really graphic. The word for surround here in, in Greek is a word that typically is used of holding prisoners in, in, a, in a jail or being locked in a siege of some kind. Can you picture it? And then the word that Peter uses for pressing in here normally refers to the pressing of grapes in the ancient Near East. So it was just a sea of humanity. The Savior has become a sardine in this bustling crowd and he can't even move. And yet he asks, so, so everyone's touching him. And yet he asks, who was it that touched me? Well, the woman's cover is blown, so she steps forward. And she does the one thing she doesn't want to have to do. She goes public with her condition and with what her designs were. She goes public with her story. The story of her uncleanness. The story of her bleeding of her plan to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment, and then the stunning news that she had been healed on the spot. So what was Jesus' response to her? Verse 48, daughter, by the way, is the only place in the Bible where Jesus refers to somebody this way. This is stunningly intimate and beautiful, really. It's tender. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And she learned something here, didn't she? Jesus taught her that her faith, not her finger, healed her. Is there a discipleship lesson here for us? I think so. Even little faith in a big Christ can do great things. She, she didn't have big faith, I think. Every indication of this story whispers anxiety, doesn't it? Not panic, just sort of quiet trepidation <laughs> and it turns out it was all unjustified so she had faith it wasn't a truckload of faith but it was faith nonetheless if you want an example of big faith we said this a couple of weeks ago go back to the centurion soldier in luke chapter 7 verse 9 where jesus says i tell you not even in israel have i seen such faith and if you want an alternate belief system entirely, look no further than the disciples with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus asked them in Luke 8, 25, where is your faith? So this ain't big faith. This isn't an alternate faith system. It's just little faith. It's just little faith. I wonder if there's something out ahead of you right now. Maybe it's a, a family decision of some kind. Perhaps a career decision. Maybe you're a leader in this church and you know what we have on the table in this season. That we are seeking wisdom. We are fasting. We are looking for God's guidance as to which way the Lord would have us to go. 
We have a few things on the table right now in the leadership of this church. Well, do you have a little faith in Jesus? Did you know that's better than no faith in Jesus? Jesus can do a lot with a little faith, you know. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 17, 20, Truly I say to you, if you have faith, finish it, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And praise God that verse 48 reads like it does. Daughter, your faith, not your finger, has made you well. Go in peace. Because in the final analysis, it wasn't her proximity to Jesus that healed her. He settles this here. Her faith healed her. So you know what that does? That levels the playing field for us, friends. We can't touch Jesus' robes with our fingers. Not in this age. We will one day. But we can touch him with our faith. And what is faith? Well, let's go back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Like last week, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You may have a whole lot of faith. You may not have a whole lot of faith in Jesus, but I wonder if you have a little faith of Jesus, a tiny little spark of faith in Christ. Perhaps you're here with us this morning and and you're not even sure if you are a Christian. Maybe you are, but just barely. (laughs) Well, can I entreat you Consider this woman's story and be encouraged. We're not saved because of the quality of our faith. We're saved because of the quality of the Savior. Even little faith in a big Christ can do great things. Now, faith can grow. Do you know that? Some of you used to have little faith in Jesus, but over the years, he's he's proved himself to you. That's definitely my story. How we've proved him or and or. And faith grows. And so if that's you, we have another truth to handle this morning. It's not truth about little faith. It's truth about big faith. And it's real simple. Point number two. It's a little clumsy, but I'm not sure what to do with it. Big faith in a big Christ can do even greater things. Big faith in a big Christ can do even greater things. The miracle within the miracle is a healing. But it's just a healing. The miracle of miracles here is a resurrection. Look with me at verses 49 to 56 once again. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once and directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. And he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So even little faith in a big Christ can do great things, but big faith in a big Christ can do even greater things. The greater thing here is nothing short of a resurrection. You see that? That's the big one, by the way. (laughs) That's like the biggest prayer request that you could possibly have answered. What is bigger than a resurrection? 
There's nothing more certain in this world, nothing more final than death, unless Jesus is involved. Because he's already done it. Remember Luke chapter 6? He raised the son of the widow from Nain. Young man, I say to you, arise, is what he said to him. Now here in verse 54, we have almost the exact same phrase, except it's addressed to this young lady. The text says, child arise, but remember, she's nearly a teenager. This just about marriageable age in the first century. She's going to be roughly the age that Mary was when she was found to be pregnant with Jesus. Luke chapter 1. The King James captures the flavor of the original when it says in verse 54, maid or maiden, arise. So big faith in a big Christ can do even greater things. Now let's, let's hop back to verse 49 for a moment. Think about Jairus' journey up to this point. Put yourself in this story. He's the one that got to Jesus first in verse 41, remember? It was his request that set up the whole journey to begin with. And the crowd doesn't make things for any easier for them on this day. The crowd is a mitigating circumstance, but they keep pressing on. And then the woman with the hemorrhage comes, cutting off the, uh, the, the, the flow of traffic to uh, Jairus' home. And Jesus is so affected by this lady, he stops the whole procession, heals her, and then has her come out for testimony time. Now think about Jairus for a moment. What's going on in this guy's head? Like, have you ever been waiting on somebody? I mean, really waiting on somebody? You're trying to be patient all the same. You're not attempting to be unkind, but for crying out loud, your daughter is dying. Verse 49 tells us, while Jesus was still speaking, someone in the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. What's Jairus feeling right now? Well, a million things. A shock that she's dead. Very possibly anger at Jesus for letting it happen. Also, based on Jesus' response in verse 50, Jairus was dealing with not a little anxiety because he tells him, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Jairus didn't call in Jesus for a post-mortem initially, right? Called him for a healing. You know, for our homework, we should all go home and read uh, chapter 11 of John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, we see nearly the same story unfold, but the characters are different because there in John's Gospel, Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick, sick unto death, and as soon as he gets the news, as soon as he gets the news, he stays right where he is for two more days and lets Lazarus die. Why did he do that? Because he doesn't love Lazarus? The reverse. He did it because he loved Lazarus. John eleven five 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, later on in the account, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So, what about here in Luke chapter 8? Jairus has just told, been told by his friends, go ahead and send Jesus home. She's dead. 
don't waste Jesus' time. He's already wasted yours. What does Jesus say to Jairus? Verse 50, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Notice it's almost word for word what he told the woman in verse 48. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And here in verse 50, Jairus hears, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. The key parallels in Jesus' words in both cases are the words faith and believe. It's the exact same word in the original. And then the word for well appears twice. So here's the thing. Jesus does raise the young lady from the dead. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Jairus had faith. He had faith that Jesus could do it. That was the condition. And he met it with faith, with belief in Jesus' words. Once again, it's, it's Matthew Henry who makes this memorable comment. This is so good. Prepare for a little bit of Latin here. Post-mortem medicus. Post-mortem doctor. To call the physician after death is an absurdity. But not post-mortem Christus. To call Christ after death. I love that. That's what we do all the time, isn't it? In evangelism, right? we looked at this last week, we are walking dead. We are calling in Christ to minister to the walking dead. Before our new birth, we are dead. And if you're a Christian today, you are a resurrection. Post-mortem Christus. Well, verses 40, 51 to 53 are interesting, are they? Verse 51, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father of the mother of the child, this is the first time in this gospel we see Jesus mark out John and Peter and James among the three, uh, among the disciples as kind of his inner ring, but this won't be the last time. Um, he'll do it again at the transfiguration in Luke 9.28. And Matthew also makes mention of this phenomenon, this inner ring phenomenon in Matthew 26.37 in the Garden of Gethsemane. He did it again. Jesus had 12 disciples, but Peter and John and James are his inner three, his inner circle. Then verse 52, read of the mourners where it says, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him because she, they knew she was dead. So I, I hope you can see the paper thinness of the sincerity of these mourners here, right? One minute they're crying and the next minute they're, they're upbraiding Jesus. In first century Judaism, it was a part of their uh, uh, funeral customs actually to have professional mourners on hand that would come in and lament the death of a, of a loved one. They're not so much bereaved as they are doing their job. And the falseness of it all emerges in verse 53 when they bust a gut laughing at what Jesus says to them. Jesus is on, so picture this, Jesus is on the way into the house. He's not going to let the mourners in. The text is very clear on that. So this exchange probably happens right as he's going in the door. And he turns around and he says, do not weep for she is not dead but sleeping. And their reaction to what he says also betrays their theology, I think. I'm not sure that I'd bet my hands on it, but I think that these folks leaned in a theologically liberal direction. Like the Sadducees of old who didn't believe in the resurrection at all. Sometimes we get the Pharisees and the Sadducees mixed up, don't we? Like, okay, which ones believed in resurrection and which ones didn't? I forget 
was the Pharisees who believed in resurrection. They were the conservative Bible believers of their day. Think, think evangelicals, by the way. Whenever you heard the word Pharisee, just put, put us right in there. So they believed the Bible said that God would raise the dead. Sadducees didn't. And I got this joke a long time ago from Al Davis. And that's why they are sad, you see. So Jesus tells these folks that this young lady whose heart has stopped beating and whose lungs have stopped breathing, that she's not dead, but only sleeping. What's he talking about? Well, it's like only the greatest hope in the entire Bible for believers. He's talking about resurrection. Acts chapter 7 Verse 60, Luke tells us that when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, breathed his last, he fell asleep. Paul was preaching to the Jews at Antioch of Pisidia, and he preached that King David, who after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Acts 13, 36. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses this language no fewer than four times. Four times. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, speaking of the generation that will be alive at the coming of the Lord Jesus, don't you hope you will be alive at the coming of the Lord Jesus? Don't plan your funeral yet. Don't look for the undertaker, look for the upper taker, right? Paul says, speaking of this generation, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And, and by the way, I've just got to share with you that in our previous church's nursery, there was a changing table, and right above it was 1 Corinthians 15, 51, assuring all of the nursery workers there that day, behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Okay? So one more example, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 20. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are the most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do we know anyone who has fallen asleep in Christ? I think we do. Emma Liebrens. Leslie Stenland, Lou Bryce, Gordon Johnson, Virginia Haig, who sat right there, Jerry Hall, Jack Madsen, Peter Wimsatt, and more unborn babies than we can possibly comprehend or fathom in this congregation. Like this young lady in our story today, they've fallen asleep. And not because their souls are sleeping. I reject the doctrine of soul sleep. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. When we depart, we go to be with Christ. And Paul says that is better by far. The term sleep here is used because that's all it is for believers. It's what it looks like. But one day the Lord will say to every departed believer what he says to this young woman in verse 54, child, arise. Wake up. 
and we'll be given our resurrection bodies. A picture of that is in verses 55 and 56, which testify loud and clear that her spirit returned. She got up at once, and Jesus is now like a physician directing uh, the, the next few steps of this child's day and figuring out the diet. She should be given something to eat and so on. Verse 56 says that her parents were amazed. I'll bet they were. <laughs> and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, why? Last question. Why does he do that? Because he told the garrison demoniac the exact opposite. Go and tell everyone what just happened. And the most satisfying answer has come to me from Daryl Bach, who explained it this way. He said, Jesus knows that he is headed for a different kind of ministry than people will want from him. Excessive focus on works of power will undermine the type of commitment he will seek from his people. I'll buy that. Jesus is headed for a cross, and that's exactly where he calls each of us to go as well. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me forever who would lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Even little faith in a big Christ can do great things. What kind of great things? Well, great things like putting your sin to death. Great things like bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Great things like humbling yourself before your spouse and your children or your parents in some case and asking for their forgiveness. Great things like sharing the gospel with somebody on your list of five. Great things like chasing our 2020 vision. Friends, this is why vision statements exist. Texts like this. Our goal is to lead people to the waters of baptism, to welcome covenant members, to raise up reproducing leaders, to launch community groups, to establish the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling, to commission families for global missions, and to plant a church. Great things, Mount Evangelical Free Church. Jesus raises the dead. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Those of you who were a part of this church 13, 14, 15 years ago, look around. Be encouraged. God raises the dead. We are not saved because of the quality of our faith. We are saved because of the quality of our Savior. Even little faith in a big Christ can do great things. Big faith in a big Christ can do even greater things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this simple account, this miracle within a miracle.